we are in chapter 2 now. And we'll be studying from verse 1 to 11. We have already studied that in chapter 1, we saw that the prologue depicts Jesus Christ as the divine Logos who created the universe. And it was this divine Logos who became incarnated, that he became human being in order to save us humanity. And this is the very Jesus who came as the Messiah for the Jews. Of course, the Jews in his days, most of them did not recognize him, acknowledge him. But he was the Messiah. He came as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Because, you know, the Jews, the whole nation of Israel has been waiting for this resolution regarding sin issue and condemnation issue. And therefore, they continue to give animal sacrifices for all these years. And then finally, Jesus arrives on the scene and he becomes the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And in the rest of the chapter 1, the author John, he establishes the witnesses to Jesus Christ. And first set of witnesses are actually human beings. Uh, we see... Uh, prophet John the Baptist coming on the scene. And we see five individuals who would become disciples of Jesus. Okay. They witness to Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is this person who is divine, who has come to earth. Now we're in chapter 2. So here, the author John, he bears witness to Jesus in a different way. This time he does it through the actual ministry of miracle working that Jesus performs. And the text that we're about to study, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, actually deal with the very first of the series of so-called sign miracles recorded in John's Gospel. Let me give you an outline of um, these, this series of sign miracles that Jesus performed. He performed other miracles besides these that are recorded in John. And of course, in the Synoptic Gospels, the other three Gospels, he performed numerous, numerous miracles. But these are sign miracles because the author, John, actually says this is a sign pointing to who Jesus is. And we see him in this text, Jesus changing water into wine. And then later we see Jesus healing the official son. And he's also healing a lame man by the poor side. We see him feeding the multitude. We see him walking on the water. We see him healing a man who was born blind. And, and the climax, of course, is him raising Lazarus from the dead. And of course, the eighth sign miracle, of course, was his own resurrection. Okay. So we see in the very um, chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, uh, John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life 
in his name. And this is a very similar type of content that he also writes in chapter 2, verse 11, the final verse of this text that we'll be studying. Shall we read this out loud together? Chapter 2, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he received, revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And so with this initial miracle story of Jesus changing water into wine, the author John, he establishes a theme of transformation that we can experience in Christ. So what we're going to be studying in, the, in this text and the text following and the, another text that follows, we see a short series on the theme of transformation. Look at this outline that I would like to present to you. We see here Jesus changing the water into wine. But next we're going to see another story where Jesus is purging the temple. And that's bringing transformation to the temple. And then finally in chapter 3, the great chapter on salvation and conversion, Jesus is actually teaching on rebirth, how to be born again. And There's no transformation like a human being or human source being born again in the Spirit of God. So we begin today with the context of a wedding banquet, and Jesus is going to show us the way to transformation. And I'd like to make four major points of the way Jesus goes about doing the works of transformation. First of all, Jesus begins with our natural life circumstances. He's going to bring about spiritual transformation, but he starts with the natural. That's the amazing thing. He starts with earthly. He starts with the material. He starts with present here and now of our lives. And Jesus is very much engaged in that. Not only one particular type or certain types of situations, but all types of situations in our lives. Jesus is very much involved in all aspects of our lives. Shall we read uh, verses 1, 2, 3 together? On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. 이제 한국어를 함께 읽습니다. 사흘째 되는 날, 갈릴리 가나에 혼례가 있어 예수의 어머니도 거기 계시고 예수와 그 제자들도 혼례에 청함을 받았더니 포도주가 떨어진지라 예수의 어머니가 예수에게 이르되 저들에게 포도주가 없다 하니 But what do we see here? We see a picture of a wedding banquet. Jesus was at a party. Okay? And the relatives of the bride and groom and friends were gathered. And obviously, Jesus and his mother Mary and his five disciples had some kind of connection with the, the family that's celebrating this wedding. And so they, they are invited. So we have wedding banquet. We have friends and relatives. And they got a lot of food to eat and wine to drink. You know, this is one of the very controversial uh, texts for many Christians who are very conservative. You know, they want to somehow water down that wine and say, basically, I think the transformation was that Jesus transformed water into grape juice. 
But the text is very clear, it's wine. But I do have to say that the Bible uh, has no problem with drinking wine because that was a custom in those days. And wine was the way to actually purify water because water was not to be trusted as much as wine for drinking. But having said that, they always diluted wine. And usually two-part wine, three-part water, or even more. Okay? So don't think that they were drinking heavy drinks you know, and getting intoxicated. That's not the point. Because Bible prohibits us from getting drunk and leading licentious lifestyle, loose lifestyle. But Bible has no problem with fermented drink called wine. And so, here Jesus is engaged in a, a party scene, and I believe that he was really enjoying himself. I think he was drinking, and eating, laughing, and being joyous. He definitely was not a party pooper. A lot of people think that Jesus was an ascetic, that he would you know, remove himself from scenes like that, but you don't see that in the gospel. Jesus was always engaged in the lives of the people. And this is a good thing. We should learn from this. Now, having said that, I want to mention some facts about Jewish wedding. In Jewish wedding, the burden of providing the hospitality and providing the finances and provisions, all that was the burden of the groom. So it was the groom who had to pay an, a compensation to the bride's father. And the bride's father would receive that compensation and take a portion and give that as a dowry to his daughter. But all that came from the groom's family. Okay? I'm glad that it's much more balanced out here in our society today and in America too. And usually it's the, it's the bride and groom they have to figure out on their own. But in the olden days, it was the groom's family that bore the burden of the finances. It was the groom who had to pick up the bride and escort her with his party, bring her to his home. And then they would host this major banquet. And usually the banquet lasted more than a day, two, three days, sometimes a week or two. And they had to provide all the food and hospitality to all these guests, relatives and friends, and sometimes the entire town. Think about that. And so you can imagine in the midst of this party, in the midst of this great banquet and festivity, if you run out of wine, it's the greatest shame in those days. You see, in the, in the Middle Eastern context, hospitality was as important as anything else. And if you run out of wine and you cannot treat the guests who are there, then it was a shame to the family. And so we can understand Mary's concern for this family, whether she was a relative of the family or whether she was a close friend. But we know that she was in some way responsible or felt obligated to provide for the wine. So what did she do? She did the usual thing that she did in her relationship with her oldest son, who started providing for her and the family after Joseph died. So she naturally went up to Jesus and says, they ran out of wine. They ran out of wine. But what's the big deal? You know, the big deal is Jesus made a big deal about this in his comment to Mary. 
Now, what Mary did was basically a prayer, wasn't it? Isn't that what we do when we have a need? When we find ourselves a shortage of supply? We come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we ran out of wine. We ran out of resources. Jesus, we are in a very needy situation. This is going to bring shame to the family. What am I supposed to do? It's a prayer. And this is exactly what Mary did. But Jesus' comment seems to clearly show us that somehow Mary was going beyond that. Now, we can't tell from the words because here the words literally are simply that there's no wine. Matter of fact statement. But you know in any statement, huh, we have Jehwan here, he's, a, he's actually a, a specialist in linguistics. Okay? And so in linguistics, I don't know if there's a theory in linguistics that says it's not just words, but it's the tone, intonation. You know? It's how you, how you phrase it, how you, the nuance behind it. But somehow Jesus picked up on that nuance. And this is what Jesus had to say. Woman, why do you involve me? Why do you involve me? That's literally, what to me and to you? What does this matter have to do with me and you? And Jesus replied, my, my hour has not yet come. Now, by the way, some people make a big deal about this term, woman, in Greek is gunai, and they say, what? You call your mother a woman, you know, like in a condescending way? No, that's not it. This is actually a, a term for respect. It's like saying lady. It's like saying madam. But it is very unnatural for Jesus to do that because Jesus has had an intimate term. He could call his mom, mom, mama. Wasn't he a mama's boy? Wasn't he faithful, taking care of his mom, lived with his mom? He was a celibate. He, didn't, he wasn't married. Mom and his family was everything for Jesus. But something apparently changed at this point. What has changed? Relationship has changed. See, Mary was thinking of Jesus as someone that she can totally depend on. My, my first son, you know, he's the provider of our family. You know. And maybe in a subtle way, she also wanted to show off her son. She knew it was kind of, time, kind of time for him to emerge as the Messiah. Maybe she was kind of being pushy, like a typical Jewish mom. A little pushy. No more wine, son. You know, I wonder what kind of tone, what kind of intonation, what kind of nuance was behind that. But Jesus read it right away. Oh. She wants me to do the Messiah thing. Like do something spectacular because he's no, more than anyone, his mother was so confident and so convicted about her son. She was so proud of her son. This is his chance. Do it. Show it. But Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet. What is he saying? Do you remember in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2? There was an incident in which uh, Jesus got lost in the temple area, right? And 
his parents could not find him. They were looking all over for him. And then finally, they found him. And they got so frustrated with Jesus because he just went off on his own and was engaged in a conversation with the, the teachers of the law in the temple area. But instead of apologizing, Jesus said, Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? My father's house? And he was looking at Joseph. You're my earthly dad, but this is my real dad. And he's talking about spiritual relationship. Already he was making a demarcation or setting the boundary that clearly set him apart from being treated simply as flesh and blood. Just a blood relationship. Just a natural relationship. I think we all naturally go through that. When it comes time, we come of age, you know, sometimes we do have to break away from our mothers and fathers and clearly establish the line saying, I'm an independent entity. You can't just boss me around, tell me to do and dictate all aspects of my life. And we naturally do that when we come of age. But this is a different matter. This is not Jesus declaring independence. He's, I'm a grown-up boy. Don't treat me like this, mommy. No. In this situation, Jesus is talking about kingdom priority. Even his mother had to understand that language. And hand him over to God. Hand him over to be God's servant. Instead of trying to control him from behind. So basically, uh, what Jesus was saying and doing through this remark is actually getting his mother's pushy hands, pushing it back and establishing the boundary. And only after that would he consent to what she wanted him to do. He did the same thing at the age of 12. He said basically, did, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And then in chapter 2, he clearly says that he went and submitted to his parents. He followed them back to Nazareth. He submitted to them. Very interesting. Because we see uh, also in Mark chapter 3, verses 33 to 35. Let me give you a little context for this text, and I'm going to read it for you. One day, Jesus was ministering in a home setting, um, someone else's home, and his mother and his brothers realized that Jesus had forgotten to eat, and he was exhausting himself. And so they wanted to take charge and provide for his needs. So they rushed to the house, and they said, your mom and your brothers are here. Please come out and greet us. And you know what Jesus did? In chapter 3 of Mark, verses 33 to 35, who are my mother and my brothers? He refused to come out. And he asked this philosophical question, who are my mother and my brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Wow, that, that could have been very offensive. If I went up to um, uh, Sarah, and Sarah was hanging around with her friend, and says, Sarah, Dad's here, Mom's here, come on out. You know, you're exhausting yourself with all your friends. And Sarah says to me, who is my father and my mother? These you know, who are before my presence. They are my... Wow, I would be totally offended. But this is... Jesus had a tendency to do that. 
I mean, Jesus basically, I think, was a very good boy, very submissive, very obedient, very much complying to the ways of his parents, the ways of his mom. But there were times he says, no, you, you are now trying to control me, and you're trying to make this natural thing the priority of the kingdom, but there's a supernatural thing, there's a spiritual thing that I want to emphasize that has to do with the kingdom allegiance, and mom, uh, uh, my brothers, my sisters, my whole family could be wrong about this if they don't establish the priority right. Are they the doers and the thinkers of the word and the will of God? If not, I'm sorry. I side with people who are thinkers and doers of the work and the will of God. Amen. And this comment is very interesting as well. My hour has not yet come. 내 때가 아직 이르지 아니하였다. 이렇게 말씀하십니다. It's not my time yet. And all, we know that in the Gospel of John, his mention of time always had to do with the cross. But in this case, I think he's referring to his initial move or inauguration of his role as a Messiah. Even that, mom, you cannot dictate to me. You cannot tell me this is my call, this is my time, this is what I need to do. Only God can tell me that. You see. So, as I mentioned before, Jesus is very much engaged in our natural life circumstances, but in the midst of our circumstances, he is very clear about establishing the kingdom priority. Spiritual relationships first. God's will and God's word being the priority. Then, the third point is very, very important. Jesus in order for him to perform any kind of miracles in our lives and especially bring forth some kind of transformation that we can say, wow, this is amazing change that has come upon us and our lives. Jesus requires, in one word, allegiance. In other words, trust and obedience. 예수님은 우리의 충성, 신뢰와 순종을 요구하십니다. And we can see this. His mother got it right away. One great thing about Mary, we don't want to elevate Mary too much, but we don't need to put her down either because she was a very highly uh, spiritual woman. And we can see right away her response in verse 5. Instead of arguing with her son, son, how can you treat your mother like this? She says in verse 5, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And this is a comment of total trust and total submission. Do whatever he tells you. I don't know what he's going to say, but listen to my son's words. As I mentioned earlier, Mary coming to Jesus and saying, we ran out of wine. That's making a request known unto God. It's prayer. That's what it is. Prayer is simply making our request known unto God. Now what Jesus read in her intonation was this kind of pushy tendency. Like, 
we ran out of wine. Expecting something. She was demanding that Jesus would do something. She was being pushed. Now, in our prayers, same principle applies. If we get pushy, it can't be the will of God. Have you ever been pushy with God? God, I don't have any more money. You hear me? You know, you need to do your job and provide for my... You get pushy. Show that kind of attitude. Something comes in between God and us. A war gets established. But rather, what we need to do in prayer, a major principle in prayer, is repeat after me. Trust and submission. And isn't this what Jesus showed us in his prayer in the Garden of God, Gethsemane? He said, not my will, but your will be done. He had to learn to trust. As a matter of fact, Jesus prayed three times intensely so that he can let go of any of his agendas, any of his desires, and say, Lord, your will be done. Not my will. I trust you. I will not rely upon my fear and my anxiety anymore. I will trust you and I will submit myself to you. Trust and submission. No more this pushy thing, but making my request known unto you. I think this is a proper balanced way of actually praying. And then following that with obedience. That's the important thing. Did you know prayer needs to be followed by obedience? You can't pray and not act upon the word of God. And then at the end of the day, you say, how come God didn't come through for me? How come? Because you pray, but you did not obey. You need to pray, and in that prayer, God may expect you to do certain things. You must abide by that. You must obey. And this is exactly what we see in verses 6 to 9. Let's see this transition uh, to seeing the miracle happening. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now, I don't know if you uh, can imagine this scenario, but it says that the water jar, there were six of them, and these were not just small, small water jars that you carry to you know, draw water from the well and bring. This is the permanent water jar. It's made out of stone, so it can't be moved. And how much water do these jars hold, each of them holding Anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons. So if you have six jars, it's something like 120 to 180 gallons. Average 150 gallons. That's a lot of water. A lot of water. And Jesus says, I want you to fill the jars with water. Because the jars were used for ceremonial washing of hands. Okay? And so the water probably was exhausted after doing that for all the guests. Jesus, first of all, draw the water from the well, from the town, and bring them and fill it up. So these servants faithfully went to draw the water, pour it in, draw it, pour it in. I don't know how long it took, 
It may have taken an hour or more. But it was a toilsome. It was a taxing task. And for them, it seemed meaning, meaningless because what they needed was wine, not water. And yet they obeyed Jesus. And sometimes, you know, our mind gets in the way when Jesus asks us to do certain things. This doesn't make sense. I ask for money, and Jesus says, you know, be kind and nice to somebody. Well, am I going to get money from them? Or maybe I should be nice to somebody who has money. I mean, we, we're always too tempted to try to figure out the solutions on our own. But there are times Lord will ask us to do something completely different. It has nothing to do with that. There's no direct correlation. But once established, Jesus does the miracle, which we cannot do. So sometimes it's, it's toilsome. Sometimes it's questionable. Sometimes we feel like it's illogical. It's impractical. Does it matter? doesn't matter because the whole idea is Jesus seeing us to see whether we're going to obey or we're going to put up a resistance. So if we're going to pray, we need to pray, learning from Mary, at least in words, Lord, we ran out of wine. We are in dire need. And this family is going to be put to shame. I feel like you can do something about it, Lord. Make the request without being pushed. So how do you do that? Learn to surrender. Trust and submit. Did you know that most of the times when we pray in length, two, three hours, I discovered that in myself, it's not so much the petition that's going to turn the key and open that lock. It's not the petition itself. It's more of me surrendering in the midst of that and being in line with the will of God so that I can become the channel through which He can begin to flow. And so after praying, I need to obey. I need to be consistent with what he tells me to do. And this is what exactly the servants did. And then finally, it is Jesus who actually brings forth an abundant, abundant quality of transformation in our lives. 예수님 우리에게 풍족한 질적 변화를 가져다 준다. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment with me how this miracle probably happened. How do you think this happened? When did this happen? Was there some kind of a, a sort of magical chant, abracadabra, you know, like in a magical show, and then suddenly happened? There's no suggestion of anything like that happening. It wasn't spectacular at all. Not too many people knew what was going on. Only persons who knew was Jesus' mother, who told servants what to do, and she was probably watching from a distance what they were doing. Servants who abided by the word of the Lord, and the disciples who were also watching, and the master of the banquet, who actually tested it and, and confirmed that this was wine. When did the water become wine? I don't think it's that important, but I can tell you it happened in the process. That's one thing that I can tell you clearly. And where could it have happened? When they were drawing the water, pouring it into the jar, when the jars were completely 
filled with water, and then after a, a, a moment of silence, it materialized into wine? I don't know. I'm suspecting that maybe it happened even in the process of dipping the water and taking it to the master. They're taking water to the master because Jesus told them to do. And in that process, as it is being drank by the master of the ceremony, perhaps it might have changed there. I don't know where it changed. But are you willing to be faithful to the very end? Or are you going to test it out? Hmm, nothing's happened. What's going on here? Hmm, nothing's happened. What's going on here? <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. And then something happens. No. Sometimes it's much better to just forget about the whole thing and just you do you, the thing that the Lord requires you to do. Obey. And as you obey, as you faithfully obey, you will be surprised. You know, God has a way of just striking us with suddenness. You know, surprises. Without our anticipation. You know what kills our prayers? Cures the answers to our prayers? Our anticipation, like, oh, it's going to happen. It usually don't happen like that. It's when you forget all that and then suddenly, wow. It happened. And so I want to say that the miracles that Jesus performed were not spectacular, showy, having special effects. As a matter of fact, he wanted to abide by what the theologians call messianic secret. He, he told them, don't tell anybody. This is based upon practical need, and I'm not trying to make a show out of this. I'm doing it because there's a need. And only those people who need to know, need to know. And then, of course, even the bridegroom found out at the end. Wow, we ran out of wine and we were about to be put to shame. And what? You're saying that I had wines in reserve? And then the master of the banquet says to uh, the bridegroom, uh, you have saved the best wine till now. Usually, when you drink so much wine and you dilute everything, you know, when people are pretty much, you know, you know, accustomed to drinking wine, then you could dilute it more and they wouldn't know the difference. But what the master of the banquet was amazed was that this bridegroom had saved the best wine for the last. So two things about the way Jesus goes about transforming our lives and bringing some kind of transformational miracle works in our lives. He does it both in terms of quantity. Think about, you know, 150 gallons worth. Quantity, second, quality. Best quality, wine. And that's why in John, one of the themes that the author uh, in the Gospel of John, that he emphasizes is that when Jesus does something on our behalf, he does it so excellently, so abundantly, that the life that we experience, the eternal life, is what is known as abundant life. It is not simply just barely surviving. <laughs> just have a noise, not like that. Drinking and breathing and living it and thriving. Do you want that kind of life in the Lord? Do you want that kind of transformation, that kind of miracle happening in the Lord? I think we, we can learn from Mary and the servants and the 
the whole process that is actually depicted here in this text. I think we can learn from this. The final verse in verse 11 says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was the thing. Now he's going to try to get others to believe him. But the purpose of this sign was for his disciples. They just accepted him as their Lord and Savior. They walk in this path, but Jesus is going to demonstrate this power for them so they can get a taste as to what kind of future they're going to have with him. And so this was a very private thing if you think about it. But today, I know that in some circles in Christianity, and I was a part of those, those circles in the olden days, and I didn't know any better. I thought we're supposed to parade around with spectacular things. We're supposed to make the centerpiece of our fellowship. We're supposed to broadcast that kind of news. What I'm realizing from the Gospel of John is that that's not the proper way to understand signs and wonders, miracles, and supernatural powers of God. God is always interested in the practical aspects of our lives, practical needs, and He wants to accommodate to that. And He does it in a very natural way. There was no abracadabra. It's just a natural thing. Miracle did happen, but we don't know how it happened. That's the whole point. Because if we know how it happened, then we begin to maneuver, manipulate, find some kind of formulas to imitate them. And Jesus would have none of it. Why? Because he wants to become the master of miracles. And for each miracle that is required, of, that, that we desire to have, we must go directly to Jesus and follow his principle. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful miracle story, which is actually a sign that points to your son, Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's about, and what he is engaged in, bringing transformation into our lives and transformation into the situations of our lives. So Lord, teach us that when we have certain needs, a certain crisis that we may face, that we will not get so anxious over them, but bring them forth to you and make our requests known to you. Without being pushy, we can trust you and submit all things to you. And then whatever you would request of us to do, that we would simply trust and obey. And then we see the miracle happening along the way. We want to journey with you in this miraculous path the supernatural workings of God in our lives and the amazing transformations that can happen both in terms of quantity and quality in our lives. We want to see that happening. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn His countenance towards you and radiate in all His glory, beauty, wisdom, and love. And may you now go forth, totally trusting the Lord and submitting yourself to His will and acting upon His word in obedience, that you may 
truly experience miraculous works of God and great transformations happening in your lives and in your family's life, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Blessings, everyone.